Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20. Last week, you remember, we were introduced to a man named Abram, Avram, whose name, of course, would later be changed to Abraham, the son of Terah, whom God called to leave his family, to leave his home, and go to a land, he said, that I will show you. And we connected that with the book of Acts, where Stephen reminds us what we read in the beginning of chapter 12, which is that God had said this to him before, and he didn't listen. And he went halfway, and he waited until his father died, very similar to that man who said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And now he's in the promised land. And God confirmed that promise to him. He said, I will bless those who bless you. I will make you a great nation. You're going to fill this land. And through your seed, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. And we looked at that promise in some detail last time. So I'm not going to repeat all that tonight. But in chapter 12, verse 10 and following, the promise that God made to Abram faces its first real challenge. The Lord If you'll remember in Genesis 3.15, in the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, the Lord told Eve that the seed of woman will crush the head of the serpent. That's the promise. And that's been passed down to Noah and to Shem and now to Abram. So from that point on, the, the Bible is usually going to refer to the seed of Abraham describing that promise. But it's the same promise. And we saw a couple times through the early chapters of Genesis how Satan attempted to corrupt the seed of woman. He attempted to prevent Messiah from coming. We saw that through the Nephilim. We saw that through the, the killing of Abel by Cain and other, other tragic stories like that. And we're going to see another one tonight. This is when Abram and his wife Sarai, her name had not been changed to Sarah yet, but Sarai, they're going to sin in order to get out of a tough situation. And in so doing, they're going to put the promise of God at risk. They are going to jeopardize the seed that God had promised. And I do say they because while Abram certainly has the share of blame here, Sarai went along with it. And we're going to see later on she was more than willing to fudge the edges of what God had said in order to accomplish his promise. They're going to make an exception to God's commandments in order to preserve their lives. And that's what we're going to look at tonight as far as application, is that we can make exceptions to God's rules sometimes. We say, I know what God said, but he didn't foresee my situation. And we're going to see that when we do compromise and make those, those mistakes and make those exceptions, we wind up in situations that might seem great on the surface, but they're rotten at the core, and that there's a big crash coming on. We're also going to acknowledge extraordinary circumstances that would seem to to test what this is teaching us, but I don't think it's going to, of course, corrupt what the Word tells us. It all all adds up to this. When God tells us to do something, whether that's specifically for your life or whether that's in the Word of God, when God tells you to do something, it is His job to make sure it all turns out all right. It's your job to be obedient. But Lord, If I do what you said, this is going to break. God goes, that's not your problem. My problem is to make sure it doesn't break or to sustain you if it does break. Your job is to be obedient. And Abram had to learn that lesson. We're going to start now at verse 10. Let's read down to verse 13. This is a weird story. Just going to put that out there. A lot of weird stories here. Verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. What land is that? That is the promised land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And she said, oh, go on. (laughs) And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. All right, so this is the first of three very similar stories in the book of Genesis. Abram is going to do this not once, but twice. And then his son Isaac is going to do it once. Chapters 12, 20, and 26, we're going to see these stories. And some people who think they're clever will look at that and say, now this is a duplicate story. Obviously, something like this wouldn't happen three times. 
apparently these people have never dealt with sin before because <laughs> it happens over and over again, unfortunately. But these stories are distinct enough to be separate. And when we get to the second one, we'll draw those out a little more. Different places, different kings, it plays out differently. And also the culture of the time would have made this more likely. We would never in a million years dream of doing this. Oh, yeah, sure, you can take my, my sister. She's not my wife. Yeah, go ahead. We would never, ever do that. But back then, th that was the culture of the day. It was not a good culture, but that was the culture they were in. The harems were very common, especially among the rich and the powerful. And it was not unheard of for somebody to take someone else's wife or even for a daughter or a servant to be given as a gift, as a, as a way of making peace. And like I said, it's not good, but that's the way it was. So it's, it's not good for us to look back from our perspective, our vantage point, and look at that and say, there's no way something that wild could have happened three times. Well, back then, it wasn't such a wild thing. And Abram moved around a lot, and he was a very rich man, so he would have had to run in these circles of necessity. And, yeah, so I'm not going to talk anymore about that. It's in there three times because it happened three times, okay? And we see there is, there is a severe famine in the land, the land of the Canaanites. Now, Abram has not taken possession of this land yet, that's not going to happen until Joshua leads the children of Israel into the promised land. But the Lord sent him there to walk through the land. And we're going to see in a later chapter, the Lord is going to say, everywhere your foot has trod, I'm going to give you that land. But the Canaanites are living there now. And there's a severe famine. And Abram is going to move to Egypt. Doesn't mention Lot here, but we can assume that Lot was with him. And they went down to Egypt. This is, remember, the... the Ancient name and even the modern name of Egypt is Mitzrayim, but the Greek and Roman name was Egypt, and that's why we use that. So that's where they're going. Now, Egypt, of course, even to this day, has the Nile River that runs right through it. And every year it overflows its banks and it irrigates the ground naturally. And so they have an advantage being in an otherwise desert location, but they've got tons of water. And so everybody comes from miles around to Egypt. If there's a famine in your land, you're going to go to Egypt. Joseph's brothers are going to do the same thing. And this is what allowed Egypt to grow up into a great and powerful nation. Because they could absorb things like plagues. They could absorb things like locusts blowing through. They could absorb warfare because the land is going to naturally regrow itself. Where any number of those things could have happened in Canaan. And they don't have that natural ecology that's going to help it grow back. And he goes to Egypt. Now, that just doesn't sit right with us, does it? You're going to Egypt? Now, Abram didn't know what was going to happen later on with Egypt yet, but still, he's going to go to Egypt? And it, I want to be careful because the passage does not criticize Abram for this. Like, it doesn't come out and say Abram was wrong to go. It was a severe famine. And the Lord is, is certainly not going to fault Jacob and his sons for going to Egypt, but it still doesn't sit right with me anyway. Say, Abram, you just got to the land of promise. You just got here. Why not stay? Maybe, maybe the Lord could have delivered it into his hands this way. I don't want to speculate, but who knows? It's almost as if he got there and passed right through and kept on going to Egypt. They could preach that. Sometimes the devil will take us out of one thing, lead us through what God has done, but he takes us so far to the other side that now we're committing the opposite sin in an attempt to not commit the one we were committing. Whatever the case, Abram goes to Egypt, and before he gets there, he makes a plan with his wife. This is a family meeting to remember. <laughs> he says, honey, I want you to say you're my sister when they ask who you are. He says, because they will kill me so that they can take you into Pharaoh's harem. Apparently, they had enough morality to not take a married woman into the harem, but they didn't have enough to, to kill him first. So that's okay. As long as you kill him first, it's okay to do that. And as I said, this is wicked and corrupt. It was customary at the time. There it is. Now, Sarah, at this point, she was 10 years younger than Abraham, and we know he was 75 when he left Haran. So she's somewhere in her mid-60s, and she's beautiful enough that they have to make this plan. That's something to think about, isn't it? And of course, they, they did live a little longer at that time, and so she... It, Maybe wasn't the same 60 that we have today, but even later on, this is going to happen again, like decades later. So Sarai was a knockout is what this story is trying to tell us. And he's trying to avoid a situation like the one we have with David 
Bathsheba, and Uriah. Do you know that story? This is the story you found in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. I won't read it. It's way too long. But David doesn't go off to war. He stays at home. He chooses rather to be the warrior king leading his people into battle. He chooses to stay home and send other men to fight for him. Problem number one. Problem number two, he's out there strolling on his palace rooftop and he looks down into the city and he sees a woman bathing and he continues to look. Problem number two. Of course, if he hadn't been there, he wouldn't have been in that temptation in the first place. Then he calls and asks somebody, hey, who is that? And we're going to stop counting problems because they're going to get out of control here. So that's Bathsheba. That's Uriah's wife. Uriah was one of David's mighty men. Uriah was one of the men that had stood with David in the wilderness when they were running from Saul. He was one of the the discontents and the debtors and those who were kind of like Robin Hood and his merry men, you know, the outlaws that ran with David. And now they're in the palace and they're in the city and Uriah's off fighting David's war. Well, David doesn't care. He brings Bathsheba into his house and you, you could call this adultery. It is in a way, but it's really more almost a form of royal rape at this point because you're being brought into the, the court and the house and the bedroom of the king. You, know, you don't get to say, no, thank you, sir, I'm married. And he commits adultery with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. She's with child. And so David says, all right, what are we going to do about this? Well, he calls Uriah back and he says, Uriah, you're such a great guy. You're a great soldier. How's the battle? How's it going? Catch me up, man. And he says, go home and and go see your wife tonight. He's trying to set him up, you see. And Uriah says, "I, I can't go home and be with my wife and be in my own house while my men are out on the front lines on the battlefield sleeping under the stars. Much more honorable than David, wasn't he? And he sleeps at the gate of the court of the king instead. David finds him the next day and is a little disappointed by that. So he says, all right. Come, come tonight, we'll have another party. And this time he gets Uriah drunk so that Uriah will go home and sleep with his wife and he'll think the baby was his. Uriah gets drunk, but still won't go home. He's more honorable drunk than David was sober. And David says, okay, we're going to have to fix this. He sends a message with Uriah. Uriah carries the message to Joab, David's unscrupulous cousin, And he says, I want you to put Uriah at the hottest point of the battle, and then I want you to withdraw everyone else so that he dies. Joab does that, and Uriah dies. Then David takes Bathsheba into his harem and probably spun it as an act of compassion. Your husband has died in in battle. I will take you home, and I'll take good care of you. I'm the king. You'll never want for anything again. Well, the baby is is born, we believe, and, and is months or maybe a year old until, of course, the prophet Nathan shows up. And Nathan says, hey, David, I need your help with something, judging a matter. There was a man that had a whole bunch of sheep, and a friend came to dinner, but instead of slaughtering one of his own sheep, he went and stole his next-door neighbor's pet lamb. And he he killed and ate that. What do you think we should do to this guy, David? (laughs) David said, off with his head! Such a man deserves to die! And Nathan points his finger at him and says, you are the man! And he exposes his sin right there in front of him. And David, to his great credit, repented. And the Lord showed incredible mercy to David. But the Lord said, that child you had is going to die. And the child died. And David, says, comforted his his wife Bathsheba. And she had a son named Solomon. So through that, David probably promised, because of everything you've done to you, your son will be the one to sit on the throne. And he was. And Jesus the Messiah was a descendant of that union. I told the whole story, but let's not forget where we're coming from. This is what Abram wants to avoid. Because this happens. If David did this, then Pharaoh doesn't care. And he knows his wife is beautiful enough to attract their attention. And he says, we're going to lie. We're going to say that you're my sister. Sarai was complicit. She went along with it. Ladies, you are in submission to your husbands, but you have a responsibility when they are in sin to confront them in the Holy Spirit and say, no, we can't do this. God will take care of us. They both decided to make an exception to God's rule. What rule were they breaking? Well, the rule against lying, obviously. Psalm 51 verse 6 says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. The Lord delights in truth 
It had not been codified yet in Exodus 20, verse 16, thou shalt not bear false witness. Ten Commandments hadn't been written yet. But that was, that was right and that was true before it was ever written down. God himself is the truth. God is not a liar. God is, is real. God is the most real thing there is. And for him to have a lie in him is inconceivable. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Lies and deception are the tools of Satan. John 8.44 calls Satan the father of lies. So who birthed this lie in Abram's heart? It wasn't the Lord. It was Satan, the father of lies. Revelation 22.15, when it's talking about the heavenly Jerusalem, heaven, if you want to make it real simple, said, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters. Now, so far, we're like, yes, they deserve to be outside of heaven. And then he says, and everyone who loves and practices a lie. And we go, oh, no. (laughs) The law of God is clear. And it was clear even then. They had no written scripture at this point, but they knew what was right and wrong. The Lord had told them. The Bible says that our conscience testifies. And Abram had been promised by God, you will be a great nation. I will bless you. You will have multitudes of descendants and through your seed all the world will be blessed. He had the specific word of God for his life telling him, you are going to live long enough to have a bunch of children, Abram. He should have known better. But in order to save his skin, he chooses not only to lie, which was wrong, not only to induce his wife to lie, which was worse, but also to risk the corruption of the seed of promise by another man. Consider that for a minute. It's sort of icky to think about, but we need to see what's going on here. The the descendant of Abraham, the child of Sarah, is a big deal in the book of Genesis, and Abram allows her to be taken into the house of another man. It's a big deal. It's a grievous sin. It is never appropriate for you to evaluate the commandments of God by the circumstances of your life. I'm going to say that again. It is never appropriate for you to evaluate the commandments of God by the circumstances of your life. Thus saith the Lord, but but look at the mess I'm in. This can't apply to me. I, I can only get out of this by sinning. You do not have permission to say that. You do not have the right to evaluate that. And, I mean, just think about this logically. God sees all things. God's the one that gave the commandments. His commandments are wise. The Bible even says, He alone is wise. The Lord alone knows. He gives commandments that can apply to every situation. Little deceptions. Now, this was not a little deception, but let's just say little deceptions. Little changing of a date on an important form. Little answers to questions about where you've been that could technically be true, and in a court of law you couldn't prove it, but you know what's right. Little deceptions. Little manipulations. The Bible tells us to be forthright and to be honest, but when we're just manipulating people, we're twisting the way we say things to get them to do what we want to do, that's satanic, isn't it? That's what the devil does. The Lord doesn't do that. The Lord comes out and says, hey, Here's what's right. Do that. But we do that. Little manipulations, little indiscretions, a little flirtation at work, a little looking too long at that picture that came across your screen, a little too much of whatever it is. Now, that may be expedient in the moment. It was expedient for them to lie. We're going to get out of this, but we're going to see that it was not long-term expedient. And, of course, it was not what God's commanded, and that's what matters most, isn't it? It doesn't matter what you're going through. What matters is what God said. And it's really funny to me that we'll apply that to the most intense situations. If somebody holds up a gun to my head and says, deny Jesus Christ, I'll say, no, I stand for Jesus. Okay. But when you're in a situation at work where saying something could get you yelled at by your boss, but if you lie, you won't get yelled at, that's no big deal. Oh, no, no. If you live a life of those little things, you're never going to live up to the big things. It's not going to work. I've used this illustration before, but guys who don't practice hard, that have a lot of talent, will eventually be surpassed by the guys that have less talent but practice hard. 
When I'm in the game, then I'll really give it my all. It doesn't work like that. That works for maybe the first game, maybe the second. But by the end of the season, you're forgotten. It's the same thing with the Lord. And here's the deal, though. Every one of us thinks that we're in an extraordinary situation that has never happened before. This is unique to the history of mankind, my life. So God will excuse me for sinning. How arrogant is that? You just, Lord, you don't understand what I'm going through. I, listen, I'm your pastor. I love you. I might not understand what you're going through, but God, God understands and God knows. And God looked at your situation and said, do this. Your situation, and here's maybe something we all need to hear. Your situation is no more difficult than anyone else's. And your mandate to righteousness is not relaxed. Now, we can compare ourselves to one another. But one of the things that's been really interesting as, <laughs> as technology has grown and we're able to gather statistics on a wider and wider base, we really start to learn how not special we are. You know, I'm in a group of 800,000 people that all fit this big Venn diagram of things we've been through. And it can make you feel like, oh, I'm, I'm really not alone, am I? Well, no, you're not. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So either God's a liar or you're not looking at the situation correctly. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Oh, man, pack that up and take that home with you, you guys. God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. If Abram had told the truth, there may have been trouble. But God had already promised, I'm going to get you out of trouble. I've got long-term plans for you, Abram. Well, the same goes for you. There might be trouble. Yeah, okay. But with that, the Lord will provide a way of escape. The Lord will take you through it. There are no exceptions. Now, as I say that, everyone immediately starts thinking of exceptions. Now, wait a minute. In the book of Joshua, Rahab hid those spies under her roof. And they said, are you hiding spies in your house? And she said, no, they went that way. She lied. And God not only ignored it, he rewarded her for it. And then, of course, we automatically want to jump to World War II. Well, what about the Germans that hid Jews in their house when the Nazis came knocking? They lied. So obviously it's okay sometimes to lie. Those are actual extraordinary circumstances. And here's the thing, though. On the face of it, that seems like sin. If you want to look at it through the letter of the law like some kind of Pharisee, yes, that looks like a sin. Oh, they lied. But I think it's very clear to all of us. The greater love and the greater righteousness was to preserve life in that situation. I mean, obviously, we get that. Our, our answer to that question is not, were they wrong to do that? Our answer is, I know that that wasn't wrong, but I, I would like to understand why, you know, biblically and textually. And that's a good question to ask. It, it really is, we, they weren't going to become part of wickedness. They weren't going to, by some strange legalistic adherence to a specific command to ignore, as Jesus said, the weightier matters of the law. Straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel, as Jesus said, right? I think a little common sense and a little humility goes a long way here. I think if, if you look at those times in history, you see that the people were wrestling with that. It wasn't just, oh, yeah, we'll lie, no problem. It's like, are we, should we do this? Is it okay? Shouldn't we trust God to take care of this? I mean, and, and the thing is, you have different stories. You have some stories of the smugglers that took the Bibles across secretly in the dead of night into those Soviet nations, and you've got others that took them right through security checkpoints and trusted God to blind their eyes. The Lord used both of them. So we really want to be careful not to, to judge somebody that is in such a horrific situation like that. But what is clear is that those, those were not exceptions so much as they were a way to exercise further righteousness, not less. The point I'm trying to make is you cannot use Anne Frank as an excuse for you to ignore God's commandments in your life. Well, the Bible says that lying's okay sometimes. Don't do that. Please don't do that. David ate the showbread too. That doesn't mean anybody could walk in and eat the showbread. The Lord is saying there's more important things than bread, you guys. Abram's exception was to preserve his own skin. 
a skin that God had already promised to protect. And his method was to put his own wife at risk. Because I'm going to send my wife into the harem of a pagan king. That's not justifiable. <laughs> That's not on the same level as lying to make sure the Nazis don't take the Jews to a concentration camp. I think we get that, don't we? Same thing in our life. Usually, well, the Lord will allow this. Allow what? Your adultery? Well, the Lord wants me to be happy. Isn't that a good principle too? Yes, it is a good principle. But the Lord knows that happiness comes through obedience and righteousness or greed. We take one principle of Scripture. We want to pit it against another principle in order to try and cancel them out. Well, X plus X equals you know, the same thing. Therefore, I can do whatever I want. You eliminate them both and it's... To, to justify our greed. Oh, I, I'm, just, I'm just doing this to the best of my ability. God said, do whatever you do, heartily is under the Lord. So I'm going to have a hostile takeover and shut down everybody else on this strip down here. Or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow up my marriage because God wants me to be happy and we're in love. And doesn't the Bible say God is love? Your job is to learn the Lord's commandments and do them. Not to do what you want and then try to find a good excuse for it. That's what we often do, isn't it? We know where we want to go, and we know that the Bible is going to present some problems. So we Google some weird teacher online that will tell us a real quick explanation of why it's okay for you to do that sin that you want to commit. And now we're even going to see in chapter 20, verse 12, that Sarai was, in fact, Abram's half-sister. We mentioned that before. It's, it's weird, but it's there. But the deception was clear. And, and, and the king that they're going to allow, well, she's my half-sister. The king goes, okay, yeah, get out of my face, right? He's, he's not going to play that game, and neither is the Lord. Don't play games with holiness. And recognize, y'all, sometimes doing the right thing hurts. It hurts. It's hard. It costs something. Well, maybe we won't be able to go to Egypt then. Okay, that's fine. Don't go to Egypt. But if we don't go to Egypt, then we might starve. No, you're not going to, because God said he's going to take care of you. Well, maybe our lie is God's method of taking care of us. Yeah, now we're in dangerous ground, aren't we? Sometimes doing the right thing hurts. But the Lord's commands abide forever. They're a consuming fire. The Bible says that the Lord's word is like a hammer that breaks the rocks into pieces. What does that mean? Don't mess with it. Don't think you can stand up to it and say, well... My circumstances are different, and so therefore the word of God doesn't apply to me. My favorite one that I've heard, and by favorite I mean least favorite of all time, is when people say, well, we changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Maybe God changed again. Yeah, okay. And it's always somebody who is extremely biblically ignorant that wants to throw that out there that's one of those things like in order to explain why that's wrong we need a lot longer than these five minutes that we have together we are the sheep of our shepherd's pasture you have no right or authority to ignore or question his statutes but it'll make my life hard okay all right that happens life is going to be hard anyway you might as well do it with god on your team amen so they make this plan and let's see what happens verse 14 when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. <laughs> Pharaoh, we saw this woman yesterday. Let me tell you, she came in, she's from Canaan. Unbelievable. Was she married? No. She's traveling with her brother. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Told you it was a weird story. They get to Egypt, and Abram proved to be correct in his assessment of his wife's beauty. Some men are a little overconfident, but that's okay. You married her. You love her. But Abram knew this could be trouble. I might get assassinated because of you. And Sarai was taken into Pharaoh's harem by the princes, but they spared Abram's life. Hey, the plan worked. He gained much wealth through this, too. Can you see that? It's, it's a bride price. You know, it's, a, it's, hey, man, we're brothers now. 
we're brothers-in-law. Hey, man, you want some sheep? Have some sheep. You know, they didn't really traffic in coins and paper money back then, obviously. Your wealth was measured by the livestock you had and that sort of thing. And so this is how it was measured. He's getting rich. Now, some people, this is just going to take a quick second. I'm only mentioning this because I've heard it in some prominent places, but there are folks that want to say you can't trust the Bible because in Genesis 12, 16, it said that Abraham had camels, but camels weren't domesticated in the Middle East until almost thousands of years after that. Well, that's one of those things that depends on which historian you're looking at. <laughs> one historian says that no, one historian says yes, so I'm going to trust the Word of God either way. And also people say we have no primary sources that said there were camels in that region. Well, what do you call that thing in your lap? This is a primary source. And what people will do, it's a little dance they'll do. They'll say, Genesis says there were camels domesticated in the Middle East. All our other sources say that didn't happen until much later. Therefore, Genesis had to have been written much later. And we say, no, 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 everything shows that Genesis had to be written earlier. And they say, well, it had to be written later. It's got camels in it. So, well, you can't use the thing you're proving to prove what you're proving. And round and round you go. You have an ancient document saying they had camels. Well, that doesn't count. It's the Bible. All right, now you just showed your bias, didn't you? So I know you all are not worried about that, so let's just move on. Now, while Abram is accumulating wealth here, plan worked. She's alive. He's alive. We're making money. But his wife is living in the harem of a heathen king. Maybe they got her all dolled up like those Egyptian pictures we've seen. They painted her eyes and put the headdress on her, and she doesn't even look like a Canaanite, or she wasn't from Canaan, but you understand what I'm saying. She doesn't even look like home anymore. Now, a very important question here is whether or not Sarai consummated the marriage with Pharaoh. Did she actually commit adultery, or was she just brought into the harem? And I will tell you, it is possible to read this textually to say that, yes, in fact, she did. She became the wife. It says he took her, right? He took her into his house. And that is a phrase that typically is going to mean they got married. I don't think so, though. I'll tell you why. Even though it's possible textually, it's not definite textually. Like, it doesn't say that he took her into his bed or they lied with each other is what the Bible will usually say. Or that Pharaoh knew her is what it will often say. So it's not explicit, doesn't say that. And I think the plagues that God sent here were, were preventative rather than judgmental. God is trying to get ahead of this thing, you know. And we know that if Abraham's not going to take care of the seed of the woman that's been prophesied since the Garden of Eden, God is. So I'm willing to trust the Lord here. God preserves his promises even when we're messing them up, doesn't he? Well, Abram and Sarai, they saved his life, but they've wound up in a situation far worse, maybe even than the death of Abram. How do you think he felt? Seeing her led off and taken away into Pharaoh's house. And he's got to go home and she's not there anymore. And they keep on sending presents. They keep on sending oxen and sheep and camels and all the rest of it. Consider the shame and the fear that they would have lived on. How do you think Sarai feels at this point? Sitting there with all the other wives, waiting waiting for the night when she's going to get a call and one of the servants is going to say, your husband is calling for you. Maybe they had a wedding date set. Who knows? Abraham was a prominent man. He was an important person. So maybe their wedding was going to have some pomp. Who knows? They're sitting there waiting for that. And Abram is sitting there thinking, I'm a, I'm a fool. What have I done? When we make exceptions to God's rules, we wind up stuck in worse situations than the ones we were trying to avoid. Because what we're doing is we're building on a foundation of sand that someday is going to collapse. You know this, this word that Jesus said towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, verses 26 and 27. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. Jesus said, if you hear what I'm teaching, you read your Bible, you hear the word preached, but you don't go and do it, the life you're building is on a foundation of sand. And it might look good. You've got a house built. There are some beachfront properties that look beautiful. 
Hurricanes roll in and you can't find them anymore. Abram's situation, from one angle, looked really good. He's making money. He is getting rich. He is now the brother-in-law to be of Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at this time. This is really the situation that the children of Israel will be in much later, when Joseph was second to, to Pharaoh only. He's getting rich. His wife is living in luxury. Maybe he justified it to himself that way. She's never going to want for anything ever again. But it was rotten to the core, wasn't it? It's a foundation of sand. The house looked good, but you're living on the sand and a hurricane's a-coming. There's a reason God instructs us the way he does. God is not capricious with his commands. You ever have an authority figure in your life who is capricious? You ever have a teacher that would show up and gets really mad at the class for talking? He says, all right, pop quiz. We're going to have a pop quiz today. Like, Did you plan one? Nope, but I'm going to wreck all your grades because I don't like you. Or a coach that was capricious, you know, and it wasn't, he wasn't having you run laps and do push-ups and everything to make you better and make you stronger. He just didn't like you. Maybe you had a boss who's capricious, asks you to do something and asks you to do it again and, and kind of makes sure you know that he's doing it because he doesn't like you and he hates you. God's not that way. God doesn't give us instruction that makes no sense. He gives us instructions that sometimes don't make a lot of sense to us. What do you mean we can't eat pork? The Lord said, Moses says, the Lord says we can't eat pork. That's crazy. Why not? Well, he didn't say. He said they're unclean. What does that mean? Well, it just means they're dirty. Well, every animal's dirty. Tell me I can't. This is ridiculous. Well, we come to find out later that they didn't know how to cook pork so that they could actually get all the illness out of it. And all the other nations would get sick and die from this stuff. And the infant mortality rate was through the roof because of that. And God says, don't eat the pork. And we don't even find that out until way later. Oh, God knew what he was talking about. How about that? God is smart. Don't eat food with the blood in it. Well, we think, who would do that? You'd be surprised. Now, all kinds of nasty diseases you can get from that. Now, those are dietary restrictions, but it's the same thing with, with moral restrictions. God knows what he's talking about. God knows that lies will shipwreck your life. So he says, tell the truth. You say, well, that's hard. Not as hard as getting caught in a lie. Amen? You ever been caught lying? Oh, my goodness gracious. It is the worst feeling that probably exists, getting caught lying. Even over little stuff. That's why little kids, they can't lie. They try, but it's written all over their face. Their conscience is throwing a little tantrum. It's like, what were you doing? Nothing. <laughs> they're sucking their face, and they're wringing their hands, and you know, then they kind of start jumping up and down and crying for no reason. It's like, what are you crying? You said you didn't do anything. I don't know. <laughs> now, of course, we grow up, and we get good at that, but inside of you, you've still got that little two-year-old kid jumping up and down, don't you? Because you know it's wrong. Because God told you it's wrong. Lies don't work. People who lie to get to the top will have a spectacular fall, don't they? He's a good father. He knows what's good. He disciplines us for our good. I'll use a, an illustration. My family and I used to go to this cabin way up in the mountains that a friend of ours had that had no electricity, no cell phone coverage, no internet. It was just way out there. It had a wood-burning stove and, and gas lamps. And Micah was two years old at the time. And so we get in there, and I get the fire going, and I take Micah over, and I don't, no, do not touch this. It's hot. You know, you're trying to communicate that to the kid. And, you know, you all know Micah is a spunky little fella. And he kept on walking over, looking me dead in the eye and reaching out to touch the stove. Don't touch it. I kept on pulling him back. No, no. And finally, he gets over there again, and I said to Catelyn, I said, I'm going to let him touch it this time. <laughs> okay. He reaches out and, ah! And he's like, he gets mad and starts like screaming at the stove and comes over and throws himself into my arms. And I'm like, yeah, daddy said, don't touch, didn't he? He's in there thinking, this old coot doesn't know what he's talking about. I want to look at it. It's so touchable. I have to touch it. And I'm saying, don't touch that. Turns out dad knew what he was talking about. Sin is easy. So easy to make an exception to save you in the moment. But you know what you do? You start building lies upon lies upon lies. Now, you lied this one time, and now somebody comes and asks you about it. So you've got to lie again to make sure that everything stays good. 
And then sometimes we get creative and we put more effort into maintaining the lie than it would have been just to write the report in the first place. It's all stacked on itself. And you get to the point, maybe it's not lies, maybe it's anything else. You get to the point where you can't stop sinning because to stop sinning would cause this giant house that you've built to have a great fall on the sand. Look at the situation Abram's in. He's sitting there thinking, what am I going to do? I don't know, Abram. I don't know what to do. You're going to go tell Pharaoh? You tell Pharaoh he might have your head chopped off. Take your wife anyway. Or maybe he'll kill her too. Maybe he's hearing all kinds of stories about how ruthless Pharaoh is and unforgiving he is. You get stuck. And you know what we do when we get stuck? We blame God for the house crashing down. When we build on the wrong foundation, you hear the word of the Lord, but you don't do it. You go to church, but you don't do it. You read your Bible, but you don't do it. You acknowledge God, but you don't do it. You put Christ follower as your thing on Facebook, but you don't do it. So you're, as Jesus said, that's called building a house on the sand. So you're living a life. You think you're good with God, but as James says in James 1.22, you're deceiving yourself. Then your house crashes and you say, God, why? The Lord's like, I told you why, because you did all those things I told you not to do. Built on the wrong foundation. As I said, James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. He said, if you're like that, it's like someone who looks in a mirror and goes away and forgets what he looks like. Mirrors are there for a reason, so that we can look at them in the morning, see all the gunk that has accumulated over the night before, and then get rid of it so we don't look gross and we don't look disgusting. But if you look in the mirror, observe the fact that you look gross, and then walk away, the mirror didn't do you any good. And they say, oh my goodness, what's, your hair is all crazy, and what's that in your teeth? And you know, well, I looked in the mirror this morning. Well, it didn't do you a fat lot of good, did it? Because you're a doer, you're not a doer, you're a hearer of the word only. Maybe some of you have been hearing God's word your whole life. And if somebody were to say, if you're a Christian, you'd get offended. I've been in church since I could walk. My dad was an elder, my dad was a pastor, my granddaddy built that church, whatever it is. But you've never been born again. You've never changed your foundation. You're still building on the sand. You're doing exactly what you want to do, but you're pinning a, a, a Christian fish on it and saying, God's going to bless it. And then he doesn't, and you get mad at God? Abram escaped the problem of the moment, but just like David and Bathsheba, he's in an impossible situation. David's sins required him to keep sinning, to cover it up. And now he should have just stopped, but he would have had a gigantic crash if he had done that. But you know what? He had a crash anyway. And so did Abram. Let's read now verse 17 through 20. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, probably along the lines of make sure he leaves. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. God sent plagues upon Pharaoh's house. This is a very similar situation in a lot of ways to the, the Exodus, where Pharaoh is holding on to something that is not his, that rightfully belongs to the Lord, and God sends plagues until he finally lets it go. But this is a little different here, because that Pharaoh was doing it fully aware of what he was doing. This Pharaoh was doing it out of ignorance. Although, it was still a sin. You, you, one wife is plenty, as the Lord has said. And it doesn't say what these plagues were, but I'm inclined to think, because Pharaoh figured it out this way, that there, there may have been some sort of sexual disease associated with this that makes him realize, what's going on? What is God trying to communicate through this? And maybe he asked Sarai, what's the deal? Maybe, maybe there was sickness throughout the house. Maybe, you know, Pharaoh's house is the only one afflicted. Kind of like the children of Israel had, they were spared all of the ten plagues. You know, maybe there was an earthquake and it just rocked Pharaoh's house. Who knows? But he asked Sarai, what's going on? Ever since you got here, things have not been going well. And maybe she told him. He calls Abram in. How do you think Abram felt 
being summoned. I bet you every time. When, you, when, when you're lying about somebody or lying to somebody or you're doing something, you're sinning against them, every time they call you, your heart starts. <gasps> Hello? And if they say, hey, how you doing? You go, oh, hey. Oh, I'm good. How are you? What if they say, hey, you go, Hello? And he gets summoned in and he said, he's got Sarai standing right there. You know, Abram knew right in that moment, this is it. Why did you tell me this was your sister? Well, I thought that you might kill me. Take your wife. Get out of here. Guards, follow him and make sure he leaves. You want your stuff back? Just get out of here. Abram is sent away. But you'll notice in verse 20, he's permitted to take all the gifts that Pharaoh had given him. This is an example of the promise at work. The Lord told Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. He said, I'm going to curse those who curse you. Pharaoh afflicted Abram, so God afflicted Pharaoh. And God blessed Abram despite all of his nonsense. We're going to see this over and over again, especially when you get to the life of Jacob. Like, the Lord blessed him for that? After that, God still blessed him? Of course, we get all high on our horse. <laughs> God would bless Jacob? Well, what about you? What about your life and all the stuff you've done? You never stop and think, why would God keep blessing me? You think, oh, God is so good to me. Yeah, he is. He's good to his people. This couple had sought to avoid conflict with Pharaoh, and yet they find themselves exactly where they didn't want to be, which is at his mercy. And they wound up crashing. When we make exceptions to God's rules, we're headed for a crash. And most of the time, that crash is worse than the one you were trying to avoid in the first place. I wonder if Abram had told him about the promise. So what brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans? What brought you out of Haran? My God told me that he was going to bless me. and He's going to bless the whole world through me. And maybe they had discussions about it. And Oh, here comes the promised one. Here comes God's special friend, the liar, the one that was trying to permit me to commit adultery and do nothing about it. What about, that's called your testimony being wrecked right there. Say again, God taught us to tell the truth and to be kind and to stay sexually pure for a reason. Those things will preserve your life. Sin destroys life. Have you ever looked back at a time where you made a major sin decision and you go, I'm so glad I did that. Now, you might look at it and say, you know what, that was wrong, but we came through it and, and you know, you're grateful for the experience. But you're not grateful for the sin. You know, you look back on those times, you're grateful for what God made of it, not what you did. But if you look back on good decisions you made, you go, I'm so glad I did that. You ever get relieved all over again when you remember how you could have gone that way and you went this way and that was, oh man, if I had taken that job, if I had gone to that party, if I had taken that phone call, I don't even know where I'd be today. Well, the Lord says, yeah, well, if you listen to me, you can have that feeling all the time. Sin destroys life. This reminds me of Rehoboam. Do you know who Rehoboam was? This was Solomon's son. Now, Solomon was a great king, but Solomon's taxes were through the roof. And when Rehoboam, his son, becomes king, all of Solomon's wise elders come to Rehoboam and they say, hey, Solomon made this nation into a great civilization. We love your father. But the taxes were through the roof, and the compelled labor, which is how they did it back then, everyone was sort of like we have the draft for the army, they had the draft to build some of these monuments and things. And he said it, it wore the people out. They're, they're exhausted, they're tired, they, they need a break. And if you come in and you say, we're lowering taxes and everybody can go home, say they will love you for the rest of your life. That's the wise elders. That's the path of righteousness. Be kind. Show mercy to these people. You, you have the right as the king to instruct them, but don't exercise that right. Show grace, show mercy. It would have made for a good king and a good kingdom. But then he goes home to his buddies. So what did they tell you? Well, they said, I should, I should, you know, lower the taxes and let the workers go home. And they said, you do that. They're going to think you're weak, man. They're going to think you're soft, man. 
Your dad was great. And if you show up and you start stopping all that stuff, they're going to think you're weak and they can push you around. No one pushes you around. You're the son of the king. He goes, yeah, I'm the son of the king. No one pushes me around. So how's this for an inaugural address? He shows up and he said, my father whipped you with whips, but I shall whip you with scorpions. <laughs> you thought taxes were high before? Just sit down and watch this. Yeah, the people didn't like that very much, believe it or not. And the kingdom was ripped in two. They went after a man named Jeroboam. They said, well, what do we have to do with the house of David anyway? We're going home. They followed a man named Jeroboam, and the ten tribes separated, and he was left with Judah and Benjamin and whatever Levites were left there. And that's where you got the divided kingdom. If he had listened, he would have got what he wanted. He wanted to be respected as a great ruler. Now we look back at him as the biggest mistake of a king that Israel ever had. David, Solomon, Rehoboam. When we make exceptions to God's rules, we make things worse. And sometimes God's got to allow us to crash to teach us the lesson, doesn't he? He tells us in Psalm 32, verse 9, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. That is the blessing of the Lord will not stay near you. He said, Horses and donkeys and mules, they don't know what to do or where to go. They're not intelligent. So we put this thing in their mouth and we yank their head around to tell them where we want them to go. And God says, don't be like that. Don't make me put a bit and a bridle in your mouth. Don't make me force you. Don't make, what, what do we call it when we're training a horse to obey the commands of the reins? What do we call that? Breaking the horse. God says, don't make me break you. I don't want to break you. He said in the verse before that, I will guide you with my eye. Let me just tell you what to do, tell you where to go. You ever have a great dog that just listened to you and like knew you and you're like, this dog's almost human a little bit. You know, you don't even need to tell it what to do. He just goes. I've had a dog like that and I've had a, a dumb dog, but we loved him too. The Lord's like, just, just listen to me. Don't make me put the bit and the bridle in your mouth. Don't make me do crate training with you. Just let me tell you, God would rather you learn through his word. He'd rather you learn through the godly examples around you. He'd rather you learn from the tragic testimonies of those that have gone before you rather than doing it yourself. Oh, I'll never forget this. This is 11th grade physics. We were talking in class and not paying attention. <laughs> Might be the only thing I got out of that physics class is this story right here. But there was this young lady and she told me, we're just talking, and she said, oh, I'm dating so-and-so now. And I said, oh, really? I said, yeah, I guess you like him, huh? And she said, well, I kind of. I said, I, I, we're probably going to break up pretty soon, but, you know, we're dating for now. And I said, if you're going to break up with him, why would you date him? Just save yourself the trouble, you know? And that led to a bigger conversation about, you know, if you know that there's problems coming, why would you? And she said, well, I've just got to make my own mistakes. And I said, no, you don't. <laughs> Other people have made those mistakes before you, and you can look at them and say, okay, I'm not going to do that. I'll never, I can't just, I've got to make my own mistakes. It's like making your own mistakes means you've got to grow up. It doesn't mean I've got to go make some mistakes on purpose so that I have a bunch of baggage when it's time for me to live my life. I remember when I was growing up, I was playing guitar. I was really in rock and roll and all that stuff, and I had a really, really good friend of mine who was older and had grown up in the rock and roll scene in the 80s in California, and he sat me down a couple times and told me what that life was like. And he never discouraged me to stop playing or to not enjoy the instrument, but he said, let me tell you what it was like living the rock and roll life. I've done it. I've been there. I, you don't want it. And that, for me, made me go, okay, maybe there's, there's more to think about here. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. If you cannot learn from the word, if you cannot learn from the godly examples around you, you've got to learn through hard knocks. Now, we get used to that phrase, the school of hard knocks. You know what a hard knock is? You get knocked upside the head. Hard knock, bam. The Lord's like, you don't have to do that. You've got a whole Bible in front of you. New Testament says these things were written for our benefit. The Lord himself will initiate discipline to bring you back from the edge. If that's what it takes, the Lord will not hesitate to do it. 
If the Lord knows that putting the bit and the bridle in his mouth and yanking him over, he won't enjoy it, but he won't run off a cliff. I might have to whack him upside the head of the two-by-four. He won't like it. It'll leave a scar, but he's not going to go that way anymore. Hebrews 12.11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. When you first get into the gym and you hear a bunch of fit people telling you about how they're addicted to working out and it's so much fun, <laughs> you want to throw those people through the window, don't you? Because it's not pleasant yet. You've got to discipline yourself to get there. Same thing as a kid. You learned lessons that you hated and you threw yourself on your bed and say, it's not fair, they hate me. And you grow up and you say, Dad, thank you so much for not letting me talk to you like that. Because I see my friends who talk to their parents like that and I can't stand it. Abram would have to learn this lesson twice. But you know what? He would learn it. And God is going to make a spiritual giant of this man How's he going to do that? Because God did not allow Abram to succeed in his sin. Every time I try something new, it just falls to pieces. Well, maybe God is blessing you that way. He's blessing you by not allowing you to prosper. He's not going to allow that relationship to last because he knows it's bad for you. He's not going to let you get ahead in that job because he knows the farther ahead you get, the more corrupt it gets and you're going to be stuck. Maybe the Lord won't allow you to get something that you really want because he knows the minute you get it, it's going to turn your heart away from him. The Lord does not permit us to succeed in sin. That's the grace of God at work. The Lord is ready for your failure to become a trial. You can look back and say, that was a trial of my faith, and I failed, but you know what? I got up and I learned from it. I'm never doing that again. He'll welcome you. He'll bless you. He blessed Abraham. Abraham got to keep all this stuff. He walked out of that a rich man. And the next time we see him, they're going to have so much stuff that it's going to cause a fight between him and Lot. Did God bless his sin? No. God's a good father. You get your kids in trouble, you're still going to buy them Christmas presents. Well, they, they lied a lot this year. Yeah, they did, but they're still my kid. I still love them. God loves to turn our trials into gold. Beauty for ashes. He takes your ashes and he makes something beautiful out of it. Even your self-inflicted trials. Aren't you glad for that? Because sometimes we think, if something happens to me, God will carry me through that trial. But if it's my fault, I've got to crawl myself out first. And then God's waiting saying, all right, you ready to get back to it now? That's not how God works. The Lord was with Israel in Babylon. That was God's judgment. And he said, I'm not going to leave you. I'm sending you out, but I'm going with you. The Lord loves us. And listen, we're, we're, we're talking about self-inflicted trials, talking about making exceptions to the commandments of God. That's something that we all have done. No one is exempt from that, trying to wriggle out of God's commandments, really wanting to do something, but staring a Bible verse in the face that you can't ignore and saying, maybe there's another interpretation. What's it say in the Greek? I used to get that question all the time in the high school ministry. You'd say, the Bible says right here, you can't do that. Well, what does the Greek say? It says that. It just says it in Greek. <laughs> like it's some sort of secret code that it's going to say the opposite of what it says. And you know what this is, really? When, when we do that, it's a mark of immaturity. You know, that's an immature thing to do. And the good news is that God often treats that as an immature thing. And the good news, the really good news, is that God's love for you is not dependent upon your performance, but it's dependent upon his gracious election and love for you. Well, God chose Abraham. He was God's chosen one. I'm not. You know what Jesus said in John 15, 16? You did not choose me, but I chose you. I hand-picked you. The Lord looked at you and said, I want her. I want him. I'm going to bless them. They're going to be my child of the promise. Knowing that Jesus has chosen us, let's read Isaiah 43, 1 through 3 together. The Lord says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. 
When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. God has chosen you in Christ. He has promised to lead you through the fire and through the water. So do not be afraid. Abraham sinned because he was afraid. Even though God had already said, I've got you. You're mine now. I'm gonna, I have a vested interest in your life, Abram. I've got you. Don't be afraid. Obey the Lord and trust him to bring you through these things. But I don't know how he's going to do it. That's how it works most of the time. A lot of times if we think we see how God's going to do it, we think it's our responsibility to make it happen and we make mistakes. You ever ask somebody to do something and they don't listen to everything you say and they run off and get started and start doing the wrong thing? Don't do that to the Lord. Obey him and trust him that he'll bring you through. And sometimes we have to submit to the discipline of the Lord when we crash or we find ourselves stuck. Maybe some of y'all tonight are crashing or you are living in a house built on a foundation of sand and you feel stuck and you're like, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. The answer is to go back and do what God has told you to do. And then you're going to watch that house built, of, built on the sand fall to pieces and you're going to be brokenhearted. But immediately afterwards, you're going to go, I'm so glad that's over. We can start over again fresh. An honest conscience is, you can't buy that. The wisdom and the joy at the end will be worth it. God wasn't done with Abraham. Abram needed a correction, and he got a correction. But the Lord was not done with him, and it's, he's not done with you either. But I hope you'll submit to the correction of the Lord. Not evaluate his commandments by your circumstances, and never make exceptions to God's commandments. 